Hello everyone, I'm your host Luke, and this is my co-host uh, Gerard. Uh, How's it going everyone? And today we're talking about um, what futuristic space travel, but realistic, and like what what are your articles saying, like the next 50 years roughly? It depends on the type of engine, honestly. Some are way beyond our understanding that we could possibly build right now, and they're just theoretical, uh, meaning we don't have the ability to build them. Um, and then some other ones are uh, a little bit closer um, to reality. Some of them we've already proven work in practice, like the solar sails and stuff like that, um, or like a laser, uh, a laser guy, a laser. Uh, what was it one called? Uh, so, like, the wind jammers, they've proven to work. Um, so do the phototonic laser thrusters, too. Um, they've already tested a miniature version of that. Right. So, we'll, we'll we'll get into that. I I oh, just yeah. wanted to introduce it first. Um, okay, so this is off uh, space.com, so I can't really get much more legit. I think that's owned by NASA. I don't know, but it's very close. Um so, the truth is that interstellar travel and exploration is technically possible. There's no law of physics that outright forbids it, but that doesn't necessarily make it easy. And it, they're saying it isn't something that we'll achieve in our lifetimes, let alone this century. Interstellar space travel is a real pain in the neck. Um, so, if you're sufficiently patient... Um, we've technically already achieved interstellar exploration status. We, we have several spacecraft on escape trajectories, meaning they're leaving the solar system and they're never coming back. Um, NASA's pioneer missions, the Voyager missions, and most recently New Horizons have all started their long outwards journeys. And the Voyagers especially are now considered outside the solar system as defined by the region where the solar wind emanating from the sun gives way to general galactic background particles and dust. Jared, can you uh, look up uh, solar wind, by the way, just so we can explain that? Um, so... I got it right here. Okay, um... I, I just wanted to end on this point really quick, then I'll kick it to you. Um, so, we have interstellar space probes currently in operation, except the problem is that they're going nowhere really fast. Each one of these interstellar explorers is traveling at tens of thousands of miles per hour, which sounds pretty fast, but they're not heading in the direction of any particular star because their missions were designed to explore planets inside the solar system. But if any of these spacecraft were headed to our nearest neighbor, Proxima Centauri, just barely four light years away, they would reach it in about 80,000 years. Wow. Okay, so uh, solar wind? Yeah, it's a stream of charged particles released from the upper atmosphere of the sun called the corona. The plasma mostly can so it's plasma. It's the like fourth, uh, fourth type of matter. Um... This plasma mostly consists of electrons, protons, and alpha particles 
with kinetic energy between 0.5 and 10 Kelvin, the or, uh, KEV. Kev. The composition of solar wind plasma also includes a mixture of materials found in solar plasma, trace amounts of heavy ions, atomic nuclei such as C, N, O, N, E, M, G, S, I, S, and F, E, which are which is iron, carbon, um, nitrogen, oxygen, uh, magnesium, uh, sodium. Uh, there are also rarer traces of some other nuclei and isotopes such as P, I, I, T, which is titanium, I believe, C, R, uh, F, uh, F, E, uh, 54, which is a type of iron, uh, 56, F, E, uh, 58 Ni, uh, which is a type of nickel, 60 Ni, which is another type of nickel, and 62 Ni. Superposed uh, with the solar wind plasma is the planetary, interplanetary magnet, uh, magnetic field. The solar winds vary in density, temperature, and speed over time, over solar latitude and longitude. Its particles can escape the sun's gravity because of their high energy resulting from the high temperature of the corona, which in turn is the result of the corona magnet, uh, magnetic field. At a distance more than a few solar radii from the sun, the solar wind reaches speeds of 250 to 750 uh, kilometers uh, per second and is supersonic, meaning it moves faster than the speed, or yeah, faster than speed of the fastest uh, uh, magnetosonic wave. Uh, the flow of the solar wind is no longer supersonic at the terminal shock. Other related phenomena include the aurora, northern and southern lights and the plasma tails of comets that always point away from the sun, Geoma uh, geomagnetic storms that can change the direction of the magnetic field lines. Hmm. And then I kind of wanted to get into talking about um, the top 10 conceptual spacecraft engines. Uh, Launching a ship into space is an expensive and sluggish process of weird science and engineering. Basically, we need rockets, extreme motors that eject high-speed propellant exhaust to generate thrust. Their operation is a technical, technological miracle by the last century's standards, but the basics are pretty easy. At elevated pressure, an igniter triggers the fuel to explode inside a combustion chamber along with a source of oxygen, usually liquid. This resulting fuel escapes by the end of the nozzle as a reaction mass. Unlike air-breathing jets, rockets can't stream atmospheric gases to produce mo motion because at orbital heights, the atmosphere becomes too thin. So a rocket engine must propel off of its own exhaust fluid to get thrust. Looks simple, but the technical issues involved in the project built, assembled, and test operational space craft uh, skyrockets the budget of any satcom launching apparently overcoming earth's gravity and reaching outer space is the limit for current chemical rockets which use exothermal reactions as propulsion fortunately applied science is less than a matter of flying physics than figuring out how to make its laws work favorably um so number 10 is the synergetic turbojet one method is to build a cheap spacecraft that could use a single stage to orbit SSTO approach, a conceptual propulsion system that doesn't rely on jettisoning hardware to reach orbital height, it will use atmospheric air during launch to feed the engine's burning, burning reaction, which will avoid carrying extra oxidizer, therefore decreasing weight. Following such a proposal, the British company Reaction Engines Limited, REL, designed its 
Skylon space plane to operate using Saber, a conceptual a co- concept of air breathing engine uh, to count only on its own inner hardware to get thrust. Saber will be able to switch between two modes of operation: a typical turbojet relying on atmosphere air to fuel internal combustion, and a conventional um, rocket engine using liquid oxygen supply. Uh, REL released a proposal for a manned voyage to Mars that would employ Skylon uh, spacecraft to build the mission's spaceships in orbit. The number nine thermal nuclear rocket. Um. Ratsmos, a Russian state uh, corporation that manages internal nuclear affairs, is building a rocket engine that would take just 45 days to travel from Earth to Mars uh, against the current 18 months. Such technology would be similar to uh, nuclear thermal rockets, NTR's URSS, designed during the Cold War inside an onboard reactor. The energy released from splitting super... Uh, splitting atoms superheats working fluid to create high pressure, hence thrust, like what propellants burn, burning reactions do to chemical rockets. Due to the energetic density of nuclear fuel NTR engines, uh, weight uh, less uh, and have low combustion rates. Likewise, NASA uh, revealed its NTR project 40 years after the NERV, uh, pro- NERVA project our program closure but the space agency is also looking at higher spectrums of possibilities involving nuclear power like fission driven rockets and nuclear light bulb you just caught out number eight i'm sorry i had a had a run nose um what were you saying you cut out what (laughs) you keep cutting out (laughs) You keep cutting out, too. Uh, uh, thermal antimatter drive. Every physical uh, substance in the universe is composed of matter. Matter consists of particles. For every particle, there is a dark twin, an antiparticle. And, uh, an antiparticle has all of its counterpart traits except opposing charges. When both twins interact, they annihilate each other and let out energy in the process. A lot of energy. NASA scientists want to employ this power to boost rocket engines into interstellar interstellar, uh, travel age. Similar to NTR's antimatter annihilation would heat up working fluid to generate thrust, but with a fuel efficiency exponentially greater. 100 milligrams of antimatter are enough to reach Mars, whilst a chemical rocket would need tons of propellant for a manned mission. Researchers even want to fund an antimatter ship on a Kickstarter. Nuclear pulse propulsion. Oh, this was interesting. What about a voyage to Alpha Centauri dropping atomic bombs on the way to propel your spaceship? Nuclear pulse propulsion may be the most feasible path of interstellar travel. Uh, Starting in 1958, DARPA Enterprise Project Orion was uh, craving to build a true true space opera engine uh, or ship, submarine-style construction, 200 crew members, uh, thousands of tons of takeoff weight to launch into orbit using nuclear propulsion. Everything viable theoretically and engineeringly uh, speaking. An Orion engine could uh, produce megatons of thrust, directing small nuclear explosions against a massive plate of steel joined to the spacecraft with the shock dampeners. The political issue in budget uh, per, uh uh, proved to be problems worse than uh, mechanical hurdles. Project Orion was closed in 1965 after several accomplishments. However, several 
Similar concepts like Medusa spacecraft and antimatter fusion propulsion are still under research. And then number six, nanoparticle micropropulsion. Uh, after number five, Luke, did you want to talk about yours? Yeah. And then after that, I could go into the next five? Yeah. Okay. Electrical charging propellant molecules, then boosting them through magnetic fields is an extremely effective way to propel a spacecraft despite the tiny impulse forces, ion thrusts, are multiple times more energy efficient than chemical rockets and eventually match exothermical, exothermic propulsion in the long run. By the way, that was a system that propelled the Darwin spacecraft to Vesta and Ceres. Um, Vesta and Ceres. Funded by the uh, Air Force Office of Scientific Research, the University of Michigan is developing an experimental ion thruster termed NET-FET. The engine would fire off trillions of propellant nanoparticles through nano-electromagnetic our mechanical electro or nano electromechanical systems opening a thrust on a ship on a chip concept that can propel the miniature satellites uh, of tomorrow uh, grids of nano fet modules could be flexibly adapted and uh, escalated to suit different designs and engineering needs all right uh so what uh what engine were you going to talk about um Well, first I just wanted to talk about plasma and then how, according to one paper, it can be used as a energy source, you know, like that solar wind you were talking about. Yeah. Um, so plasma is the fourth state of matter, right after solids, liquids, and gas, is a state of matter in which an ionized substance becomes highly electrically conductive to the point that long-range electric and magnetic fields dominate its behavior. It's typically an electrically quasi-neutral medium of unbound positive and negative particles. Although these particles are unbound, they are not quote-unquote free in the sense of not experiencing forces. Moving charged particles generates electric currents. In any moment of a charged plasma particle affects and is affected by the fields created by the other charges, in turn, this governs collective behavior with many degrees of variation. Plasma is distinct from other states of matter in particular. Describing a low-density plasma as nearly as a ionized gas is wrong and misleading, even though it is similar to the gas phase in that it both assumes no definite shape or volume. Um, there, yeah. So, <laughs> it's... From what I understand, you can't... I, I don't think you can really see it. Um, like the plasma? Yeah. But, like, you, you know, that doesn't mean it's not there or whatever. It's just... I think the particles are so tiny you can't see it. But, basically, this uh, paper is one where it's saying that you can harness... Plasma as a renewable energy source, just like, um, you know, wind, solar, um, hydroelectric, yada, yada, yada. So, plasma and technology, Geothermal. what? Geothermal. Right. Um, Plasma technology is gaining increasing interest for gas conversion applications. 
such as CO2 conversion into value-added chemicals or rene renewable fuels, and N2 fixation from the air to be used for the production of small building blocks for an example, mineral fertilizers. Plasma is generated by electrical power and can easily be switched on and off, making it in principle suitable for using intermittent renewable electricity. Um, yeah. So, So it's to me kind of confusing, but I think the main thing is like it just produces a lot of heat, it sounds like, and they use that as the energy source. Yeah, and they uh, use that superheated, uh, they probably superheat like liquid or something like that to create a propellant. Uh, propellant. That's what it sounds like, something like that. Um. So, number five. Well, wait, 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 wait. Thruster. Can, can, can I finish mine? Oh, I thought you were done. All right, go ahead. Um, <laughs> so, there have been many theories and tests for interstellar travel. Some using ideas like nuclear propulsion, ion drive engines, constant acceleration drives, and for faster-than-light travel, traveling through wormholes, neutrino drives, uh, the list goes on. So, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read one of them, and then I'll kick it back to you. Uh, so, nuclear pulse propulsion rockets. It's a theoretical method where a rocket would launch some type of nuclear explosions out the back. Oh, so this is what you were talking about. Um, the U.S. government sponsored, uh, sorry, so in the 50s and 60s, the U.S. government sponsored a project that was so far-fetched it might just work. The project was codenamed Project Orion, and the idea of it was, uh, so conceivable that it's still taken into consideration today. It was supposed to be a spacecraft that had a propulsion system on it that depended on detonating nuclear bombs roughly 200 feet behind the vehicle. About five of these bombs would be dropped every second, and the shock of the bombs was supposed to be absorbed by, quote, huge shock plates with shock absorbers that make up the base of the craft. And they had built a series of models to test the concept of the design and the durability of the shock plates, which... I mean, they're, they must be pretty dang strong if they're surviving nuclear blasts. Um, however, off, after August 1963, with the signing of the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, Orion was now considered illegal under international law, and so eventually slowly died within a year or two. Um, yeah. So another project for this kind of propulsion is Project Daedalus. According to NASA in the late 1970s, the British Interplanetary Society revisited the Orion propulsion concept, but as a more reasonable scale and for in-space use only, Daedalus was to be a two-space 
spacecraft with stage one carrying 46,000 tons and stage two only carrying 4,000 tons. After accelerating for nearly four years, it reached a top speed of 12.2% the speed of light. And it began in 1973 and the final reports were in May 1978. And it stated that, quote, Project Daedalus was a feasibility study for an interstellar mission using 70s capabilities, incredible extrapolations for near future technology. One of the major objectives was to establish whether interstellar flight could be realized under with established science and technology. And the conclusion was, yes, it is feasible. The The one thing I don't understand is, so they, they're saying like stage one is 46,000 tons and then stage two is 4,000 tons. But they're, I mean, they're not using uh, atomic bomb blasts to propel the dang thing, right? So, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll kick it back to you. Sounds good. Uh, so this is the Q engine, or the Q, uh, Q thruster. Um, rocket expellent, propellant action to get thrust reaction in accordance with Newton's third law. But what if a drive could break this basic rule of nature? Roger Shire, a British aerospace engineer, believed that it was perfectly possible when in 1999 he proposed a reactionless engine... Sorry, one second. Let me turn on my light. It's starting to get dark. Um, a reactionless engine called the radio frequency resonance uh, cavity thruster, or just M drive, M drive, electromagnetic drive. EM, uh, an EM drive would bounce microwaves inside a cone, produce a thrust towards the narrow end. The experiment created controversy in the scientific community, even after Chinese, German, and NASA researchers reproduced Shire's procedures with positive results. How an EM drive works exactly remains on the edge of physics. Uh, the theory of a quantum fluctuation says that vacuum uh, fizz fizzes with energetic particles popping in and out of reality. Interacting with these particles through microwaves, it would be possible for a ship to get thrust. Uh, the EM drive created a whole new concept of rocket engines known as quantum vacuum thrusters or Q thrusters. Number four, phototonic laser thruster. Um, young... K. Bay is a Ph.D. doctor physicist founded under the Y.K. Bay Corp., an endeavor dedicated to research uh, green technologies in the field of energy and space travel. Bay's uh, patents include phototonic railways, a new molecular uh, class, a phototonic laser thruster, PT, PLT. Bay studied the PLT with NASA funding and was able to design the concept of space drivers that would wouldn't need to carry fuel tanks. Instead, the PLT will receive its thrust from a laser fired at the spaceship. Since the vacuum is frictionless, the PLT-driven spacecraft would steadily gain momentum to the distance to Mars in a matter of days. The development in direct energy technologies will be crucial for delivering multiple megawatt laser beams capable of thrusting the spacecraft through outer space, enabling an architecture free of heavyweight uh, components such as fuel and uh, main power supplies that one's interesting but it's like how do you get back if you don't have fuel and the laser's only on one side you know what i mean right because the laser the resource vehicle that uh projects the laser 
is in space uh, throwing the laser towards the mission vehicle, which is accelerating slowly through space or accelerating, I don't know how slowly or quickly, but um, the mission vehicle will then go to the objective. But there's no way for that mission vehicle to get back without another laser on the opposite side pushing it back towards Earth. So that's kind of an interesting conundrum there. Uh, Coil Space Launcher. Science fiction writers such as Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinzlin have reckoned an electromagnetic catapult as uh, plot devices for decades. Even today, magnetically accelerated payloads hundreds of miles above Earth may seem pure science fiction, yet scientists like Dr. James Pad- uh, Powell and Dr. Gordon Danby think it will be part of the space travel's future. Powell and Danby co-invented a superconductor maglev um, magnetic suspension, uh, which I think they use on trains in Japan, don't they, maglev? Um... I, I I thought they were called like grab lift trains or something. Can you look that up? Yeah, I will. Sweet. Um, uh, permitting the current EM trains to be developed, and now they want to apply technology in space through their Star Tram project. In Pal and Danby's vision, coils would produce a strong magnetic field to thrust a spacecraft or payload at high speeds across miles of railroad similar to what happens in a coil gun project. To achieve enough momentum, the track will have to be several miles in length and cost tens of billions of dollars. But according to its inventors, it's a small price to pay for the future. Um, and I think the reason why they say it's a small price to pay because once you have the infrastructure set up, you could reuse it constantly. You just need the electric charge in the spacecraft, which is going to be a lot cheaper to build if it doesn't, have, doesn't require an engine powerful enough to get it out of the atmosphere. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, have you ever heard of a YouTube channel called Kurtzagost? I have not. Well, you should really look into it, but it's, they, they make a lot of cool videos, and I watched one of theirs where they talk about, like, kind of this area, it, there's like one called Asteroid Mining, you know, like mining asteroids for like rare earth metals and whatnot. And like one thing it they used in it, Jared, was um, like you're so like once you're you, you know, like that asteroid would have its own gravitational field, right? So like there, this is theoretical, of course, but. Basically, like, some kind of satellite would or get, you know, trapped intentionally in the uh, gravitational field of the asteroid. And it would have, like, something that would, um, you know, sin, spin in, you know, c- centrifugal force or whatever. And, like, you would attach, like, a ship or like a rocket or whatever to it, and you're using that centrifugal force of the gravity, the gravity, whatever, to like, you know, kind of fling the objects into, um, you know, space and into past orbit, just into space, you know, so you don't have to use all the uh, propulsion and whatnot. Yeah, the propellant. Yeah. So it it yeah, would like just 
So it would just like totally what what's the most like the biggest hurdle for space travel, right? Is leaving the atmosphere. Well, that and the great distances, but yeah, that's the main one for like our our local um like getting satellites and things like that into space. Yeah, yeah. it's the atmosphere for sure. And the other thing is, you know, now that we've been doing this, you know, for 50, 60 years, whatever, um, there's all that space trash that's orbiting around the Earth that can also, you know, scientists also have to account for, you know, like old uh, satellites and whatnot. Yeah, they have all that stuff, like, mapped out, but the problem is they collide and create smaller and smaller pieces that are more and more dangerous for us to get out. Right. So I hope eventually we do not encapsulate ourselves in space trash. That would suck. Well, I, I, I think that there's hopefully something to be done with that, but that's a separate video. Um, I I have I found the Maglev train in Japan whenever you want me to... I'll, I'll kick it back to you, but I can, uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead and talk about the, that, and then I can finish off the last two um, engines. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> this is actually, this is actually floating. It is another b bullet train. And it is the fastest train in the world. Um, apparently, Japan is well known for its extensive Shinkansen, I'm sorry, I probably butchered that pronunciation, train system, which has been in operation since 1964. Um, <laughs> and this train is called the Maglev train, which is cool. So, how, how does this thing work? SC Maglev, or Superconducting Magnetic Trains, were developed by the Central Japan Railway Company and the Railway Technical Research Institute beginning in the 1970s. Maglev trains work on the principle of magnetic repulsion between the cars and the track, and the magnetic levitation of the train is achieved through the use of an Electrodynamic Suspension System, or EDS. The rails or guideways contain two sets of cross-connected metal coils wound into a figure-eight pattern to form electromagnets. And on the train itself are superconducting electromagnets called bogies. When stopped, the train rests on rubber wheels, and to begin motion, the train moves forward slowly on these wheels, allowing the magnets beneath the train interact with those of the guideway and once it reaches 93 miles per hour the magnetic force is strong enough to lift the train four inches off the ground eliminating friction for increasingly high speeds and the fastest this train can apparently go is 311 um miles per or no so that's wrong so, what is the train's top speed? In April 2015, a manned superconducting maglev train broke two previous land speed records 
for rail vehicles. Their train was clocked at 375 miles per hour. <laughs> 375 miles an hour, that's real quick. I can't even imagine that. <laughs> I think they accelerate and decelerate so slowly that you could barely feel the change in momentum. Well, yeah, that's what G-forces are in a vehicle is the change in momentum. It's not how fast you're going. It could be going a million miles an hour, but if there's no change in momentum, you're not going to feel it. Yeah. Um, so apparently there's these trains that are also in Shanghai, China, and in South Korea. And those trains run from 268 to 311 miles per hour. Um, the, yeah, I mean, fast as heck, but in 60 years of offer operation, the Japan's high-speed rail lines have had zero fatal accidents, making them one of the safest forms of transportation in the world. So that's impressive. Yeah. That it, I mean, if if you look at this thing, it looks like it it travels in a tunnel. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's underground. A, it's a semi vacuum tunnel, so there's very very little air inside of it. The, obviously, the train has to have air to provide for the passengers, but they take the air out of the tunnel, so it reduces the uh, air drag and increases the efficiency of the engines and the energy that's used. Which is really interesting. Okay, I'll, I'll kick it back to you, but I have two more um, modes of transportation that I want to talk about. But I still, I still have my three main, main ones. These are just the just the list of top ten. <laughs> right. So uh, number two, uh, stellar wind jammer. Uh, sun, unlike any other star, is constantly sun, like any other star, constantly spouts out charged particles uh, a true gale of high speed protons and electrons which is the solar winds we talked about earlier such radi uh, radiation pressure can push against a magnetic field and generate thrust after a decade of space wandering a sun jammer spacecraft could be able to cross the far borders of our solar system without wasting any fuel maneuvering in, uh, in exoplanetary magnetic uh, and gravitational fields to collaborate calibrate its trajectory the direction of thrust could be adjusted by changing the sail according to the solar winds uh, since the propulsive um, force would depend on the magnetic's field size, a solar wind would need hundreds of meters of, and kilometers of superconductive material to produce its magnetic field re resembling a uh, cyclop loops of wires inside uh, instead of uh, navigation age wind catching canvases. NASA plans to deploy sail solar winds in 2018 during the flyby uh, su uh, uh, survey of Asteroid Scout, which I believe they did successfully and tested that it worked. So they do work. <laughs> and then this, this one is the really interesting one that I find. This is the one that I find the most interesting. The Alcabira Drive. Uh, Einstein's field equations state that energy and matter can curve space-time mesh of reality, speculatively stretching the fabric of space behind a ship and contracting the space ahead of it. It's possible to achieve apparent faster-than-light travel. Of course, it would be space moving and not the ship. 
It's like a scrolling game, uh, so no relativistic law would be broken. Riding on a warp bubble of space-time waves, our ships may reach velocities many orders of magnitude greater than that of light. We could even travel to Mars in less than a second, but I think that deceleration would be a problem. Like I was telling uh, telling you with uh, the, the trains, like the acceleration and deceleration are the main issues of space travel as well. You need a lot of time to decelerate and a lot of time to accelerate. Um, because that change in acceleration or that change in speed is what creates g-forces and us as humans could only handle so much g-force before we go splat um the alcabara drive or just warp drive was proposed so this is a warp drive was proposed by a mexican physician miguel alcabara as a solution to Einstein's field equations which state that energy and matter can curve space-time mesh using a field of less than a zero mass, the warp drive can cause the fabric of space to twist and scroll by. So that is really interesting. Did you want to talk about one of your other uh, things? And I could get into uh, I could get into the Alcabara drive more. Yeah. Okay. So this next one is the Bussard Ramjet. Is a. Theoretical method of spacecraft propulsion, which was first proposed in 1960 by the American physicist Robert Bussert, is intended to circumvent the problems of rocket economics by collecting fuel as it goes along. The biggest problems with conventional rockets of today is they have to carry all their fuel with them. Rockets that do... A full round trip like the Saturn V moon rocket would use up their fuel just because of their size and weight. And if they wanted to do interstellar travel, most of the fuel would be used up just accelerating other fuels. Now think of jet engines. Why won't jet engines work in space? Because there is no medium to accelerate the engine with, i.e. air. However, space is not completely empty. There's hydrogen gas all throughout space. About one or two atoms of hydrogen gas would be in one cubic centimeter of space. And that is just enough of a medium for the Bussard ramjet. How it works is that it scoops up the protons, um, you know, the hydrogen atoms, and somehow get them to fuse to make a nuclear rocket. Oh, okay, I, I see how that works. So another problem shows its face, though. For there to be such a, quote, hydrogen collector, it would need to be quite the size. An estimated diameter of 50,000 kilometers. Wow. Um, oh my gosh, that's huge. Could you look up how big that is? So, um... <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard came to think about, about yeah. Um, so this way, the hydrogen atoms would ionize due to the field and magnetically funnel them into the engine intake where they would undergo a fusion reaction. Oh, so you're using fusion energy. So in, in case people forgot, um, there's two types of nuclear reactions. So there's nuclear fission, which like, think of the, we're, we're gonna use the difference of energy output between a the first nuclear bomb like the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then the hydrogen bomb. So the first bombs were nuclear fission, and those were already bad enough, right? But 
when they tested hydrogen bombs, those were fusion bombs. I believe in the fusion bombs, or sorry, uh, hydrogen bomb, they were fusing hydrogen atoms, and like that created so much energy, like when they tested it on an island, the island just like vaporized. So like, you know, there's a lot more um, energy output going into this than, you know, a fission one. So now even though somehow this ramjet was to be made of, and it does go to profound speeds, there's another another problem. Um, da, 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 da. What about all the other particles that are floating around in space that can potentially damage the aircraft to the point of no return because of the fact that they'll be hitting the spacecraft craft that this speed thing is going itself. So that's the reason why there's an electromagnetic field there. Um, it would funnel in the other atoms and molecules with lower masses than iron in space, and that will most likely be in the path of the spacecraft. And with the nuclear reactor, which would be on board, they would use these atoms up with the power of nuclear fission and continue accelerating it. Um, so this may sound like a great idea and all, but at this point in our technology, we are not yet able to build fusion engines or sufficiently powerful uh, superconducting coils. So it's more of a thing that is out there, but it's actually really cool. Um, yeah, that is actually really cool. If you, if if I can like just describe the illustration that they put out here is like on one on one end, Jared, it's like the. Uh, you, you know, think of like a normal rocket's interior in the middle. And then on one side, you have the fuel, or sorry, the propulsion coming out from one end, kind of with the, I guess, the domed structure on one end, uh, like the smaller dish of the satellite and then on the front of the craft is a way bigger um satellite dish i guess you would call it that is collecting those uh ambient hydrogen particles that is really cool that that are uh, just flo the floating out in and space uh, what was the name of that thing called again? So I could look it up. I'll I'll just save it to you. Why why or I'll I'll send it to you. Um, what's your uh, what's your next one? You said for me to look up the fifty thousand kilometers. Yes. How big that disc collection disc needs to be? That is uh thirty one thousand miles. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, not even joking. 50,000 kilometers is 31,000 miles. 31,068 miles to be exact. That's insane. Okay, I just sent sent it to you, but... Um... Sweet. All right, yeah, my next one is the uh, Alcabera drive, which is a warp drive. Um, let me look at the photo you sent me. I think that's going to be really cool to look at. Oh, that is really cool. I, that that shield on the front of it would need to be so massive. That would be insane. Yeah, 
I mean, how big that would be going through space. How would you navigate that through asteroid uh, belts and stuff like that? You know what I mean? Right. Um, so like the, the, so I, I, I can think of one way they would have to collect these hydrogen particles is that like satellite array that's collecting those particles would have to be negatively charged, right? Yeah, so it attracts the positively charged ions. Yeah, because most um, most hydrogen, um, I guess, particles, Jared, are just like a single proton. Yeah. Like, you know, usually they don't have any uh, neutrons attached to them. The Alcabera Warp Drive is a warp drive that uh, stretches space in a wave, causing the fabric of the space ahead of the spacecraft to contract and the space behind it to expand. The ship can ride the wave to accelerate to high speeds and time travel. Oh, so it's even time travel. The Alcabera Drive is known as the Alcabera Metric or Warp Drive. It is a mathematic model of a space-time exhibiting feature reminiscent of the fictional warp drive from Star Trek, which can travel faster than light, FPL. Although not in a local sense, um, uh, the key key characteristics of the application of the Alcabera warp drive for time control and time travel are presented in the picture below. This is followed by more details describing the effects. So, general relativistic, uh, relativistic um, speed is subliminal. Uh, the general space-time geometry and everything like that, that's really interesting. So it like contracts the time, or the space in front of it, and then expands it behind it, so it gives it that acceleration. Um, in 1944, uh, 1994, uh, the Mexican physicist Miguel Alcabera proposed a method of stretching space in a wave, um, which would, in theory, cause the fabric of space ahead of the spacecraft to, uh, and the space behind it to expand. The ship would ride this wave inside a region known as the warp bubble, uh, flat space. Since the ship is not moving within this bubble, it is carried along as the region itself moves. Conventionally, relativistic effects such as time dilation do not apply in the way that they would in the case of a ship moving at high velocity through uh, flat space time and what they mean by that is the faster you're traveling the faster or the slower time is going i i don't know if if you've heard of that before luke but basically if you're tra- the faster you're traveling the slower time relatively around you is is looking so if you're fa- traveling at the speed of light it's going to look at if you're looking at like the observers outside of the ship that's traveling at the speed of light the um p- things outside of it are going to be looking like there's no time passing at all whereas inside the ship time is going to be passing a lot quicker because time is going to be pa- passing at a normal rate inside the ship that's moving at sp- the speed of light while as everything else around you is moving slower um Although this method of travel does not actually involve moving faster than light in a local sense, since the light beam within the bubble would always uh, still move faster than the ship, it's only faster than light in the sense that it, uh, thanks to the contraction of the space in front of it, the ship would reach its destination faster than a light beam restricted to traveling outside the warp bubble. Thus, the, thus, the Alcabera Drive does not contradict the conventional claim that relatively forbids a slower-than-light object to accelerate faster than light speeds. Alcabaric metrics, the alcabaric metrics 
defines the so-called warp drive time space. This is a Lorenzian manifold, which, if interpreted in the context of general relativity, exhibits features reminiscent of the warp drive from Star Trek. A warp bubble appears in a previously flat space-time and moves all of uh, um, off at rel- uh, at effectively subluminal speeds. Inhabitants of the bubble would feel feel no inner inertial effects. Which means inertia effects, meaning that like you won't feel any g forces from this. It'll feel like you're standing still because inside the bubble you are. It's the space-time outside that's moving. It's not the object inside. The object within the bubble are not moving locally faster than light. Instead, the space around them shifts so that the object arrives at its destination faster than light would in normal space. Alcabara chose a specific form for the function f. But other choices give a simpler space-time, exhibiting the desired warp drive effective effect more clearly and simply. Mathematics of the Alcabara drive. Using 3 plus 1, formalist of general relativity, the space-time is described by a foliation of space-like hypersurfaces of a constant coordination T. The general form of the Alcabaric matrix is ds squared equals negative parentheses, Alpha squared beta i beta uh, to the power i uh, parentheses and it continues on for a while. I will not read that. Uh, whereas a or alpha is a lapse function, giving the interval of proper time between hypersurfaces. Whereas uh, beta um, to the power i is a shift vector that uh, relates the spatial coordinate systems on different hypersurfaces, and i uh, is a positive or y. Sorry, y is a positive defined metrics of each of the hypersurfaces, particular form um, that he studied. So I, the simple version is pretty long. The the the, the form that Alcabara studied is way longer. What in the world? That's crazy. Um, the physics of the Alcabara drive, the rest of it was just talking about the formula, and that's complicated for me to get into for a podcast when people can't see the math <laughs> for those familiar with the effects of space relativity such as the lorenza contraction and time dilation the alcabara matrix has some apparently particular aspects in particular the alcabara has shown that even when the uh, ship is accelerating and travels on a free fall geodesic in, in other words a ship using warp drive to accelerate and decelerate is always in free fall and the crew would experience no excel- accelerational g-forces, like I was mentioning earlier. And normal tidal forces would be present near the edges of the flat space volume because of the large space curvature there. But by suitable specifications of the matrix, uh, metrics, these would be made very small within the volume occupied by the ship. Original warp drive matrix, or metrics and simple variations of it happen to be the ADM form, which is often used in discussing the infinite initial value uh, formulation of general relativity. This may explain the widespread misconception that space-time is a solution of the field equation of general relativity. Interesting. So here's the difficulties with this. Is uh, The significant problems with the metrics of this form stem from the fact that all known warp drive space-time violates various energy conditions. It is true that uh, certain experimental... Uh, verified quantum uh, phenomena such as the uh, Casimir effect when describing uh, when described in the context of quantum field theory leads to an uh, stress energy tensors which also violate the energy conditions so one of the one might hope that the 
Barrett's high warp drive could perhaps physically uh, realized by clever engineering taking advantage of quantum effects. However, if certain quantum inequalities conjectured by Ford or Romo, Roman hold, uh, then even the energy requirements for some warp drives may be absurdly gigantic. So they're basically saying like the energy cost of this type of drive could be extremely energetic and extremely, uh, uh, it, it would consume a lot of energy and you'd have to find a way to make that energy on the ship. Um, the energy, uh, negative 10 to the 67th power gram equivalent might be required to transfer a small spacecraft uh, spaceship across the Milky Way galaxy. This is uh, an order of magnitudes greater than the mass of the entire universe. So that's how much energy it would take. Uh, it would take uh, a magnitude greater than the mass of the universe. Whoa. Counter arguments to the apparent problem have been offered, but not everyone is convinced that they can be overcome. Chris Van Broek in 1999 tried to address this potential issue by contracting the uh, plus or three plus one dimensional surface of the bubble uh, being transported by the drive while at the same time expanding the three dimensional volume contained inside. Van Dam Broek was able to reduce the total energy needed to transport a small atom atoms to less than three solar masses. So I think when they say three solar masses, that had to include like the sun. The sun would be a solar mass. So maybe like three suns worth of energy, which is still extremely, which is still an extreme amount, uh, if I'm reading that correctly and understanding that correctly. And that's only to transport a small, a small amount of atoms, not even a spaceship, just a small amount of atoms. Later, by slightly, slightly modifying von D uh, Denbruck's metric, uh, Krasnikov reduced the necessary total uh, amount of negative energy to a few milligrams. Uh, Krasnikov proposed that if uh, Trilonic matter could not be found or used, then a solution might be arranged for masses along the path of the vessel to be set in motion in such a way that the required field was produced. But in this actual, in this case, the Alcabera drive vessel is not able to go dashing around the galaxy at will. It's only able to travel routes which, like a railway, would have been first equipped with the necessary infrastructure. So they would have to get the infrastructure out there in the first place for this to work so that the spaceship could get enough energy. Um, kind of like the, uh, the railways in Japan for the trains, the electromagnetic railways. Kind of similar to that where this would get, get its power from the infrastructure. The pilot inside the bubble is casually disconnected with all walls and cannot carry out any action outside the bubble. However, it is necessary to place devices along the route in advance. Since the pilot cannot do this while in transit, the bubble cannot be used for the first trip to a distant star. In other words, to travel to Vega, which is 26 light years away from Earth, one must, uh, or the one first has to arrange everything so that the bubble moving towards Vega with the superluminal velocity would appear, and these uh, arrangements would always take more than 26 years because we can't travel at light speed. Um, Kulu has argued that the schemes for such one proposed by Alcabera are not feasible because the matter to be placed on the road beforehand has to be placed with the superluminal speed. Thus, according to Clow, an Alcabera drive required in order to build an Alcabera drive. <laughs> that would suck. So you'd need an Alcabera drive to build an Alcabera drive. Since none have been proven to exist already, then the drive is impossible to construct, even if the metrics is physically uh, meaningful, uh, uh, Kulul argues that an uh, analogous object would uh, apply to any proposed method of constructing an algebraic drive.
So that's all I had for that. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about the wormhole theory really quick, and then we'll end this because we're at 55 minutes. So the Einstein-Rosenbridge, yeah, Einstein a.k.a. wormhole, is like a tunnel that connects two points in space. Basically, it provides a shortcut through space to get from point A to point B, which is normally an extremely large distance that by normal means would take years to get to. Imagine, basically, how this is going around that is that wormhole, like space, has folded in on itself, and it goes in one side and lets out the other somewhere else. So, um... If you were to travel in normal space, you would be going from one point of the paper along it to another. The trip in between these points would be longer than if there were a tunnel or a wormhole connecting the two points on the paper through the empty space in between them. Now think of this on a much larger scale like our universe. Wormholes can connect several different spots from a single universe or maybe uh, connect different universes. Wormholes are mentioned a lot in solutions to Einstein's general relatively relativity field equation, but we have yet to observe evidence for wormholes. Are are wormholes different from black holes? Yeah, wormholes are different than black holes. Okay, because remember we got that we we got that picture of the black hole. Remember that one? Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, we were able to photo uh, photograph the black hole itself. We were able to photograph the mass that's around the black hole. What was that bending light or something in the picture? Yeah, so it was bending light from the other side of it, uh, the opposite side from where we're viewing it. It was bending it around the bubble of of the black hole, the event horizon, and it's coming back to us. Right. So the idea is that space time and wormholes should not have any edges, so that any possible trajectory of a free-falling particle should be able to continue in its path for however long the wormhole, unless, of course, the trajectory hits a gravitational singularity. So in order to meet this assumption, there is an addition to the black hole interior region, which particles enter when they fall through the event horizon from the outside. There must be a separate white hole interior, which allows us to extrapolate the trajectories of particles which an outside observer sees rising up away from the event horizon. Since there are two separate interior regions of the space-time, there also have to be two separate exterior regions, either two different universes or regions within one universe. One problem with the Einstein-Rosen bridge is that it is highly unstable. If it does connect two parts of the same universe, the pinch-off would be too quick for light, that falls in from one exterior region to make it to the other region, and that the motion through a wormhole is possible only in one direction. So it would be a one-way trip. <laughs> you need two, two wormholes to travel from one place and back to the original place. Right, and they would be in, you know, they would be at least light years apart. Which would really suck because we don't have faster than light travel. That'd be our way of doing it. Right. So you'd need three wormholes: one to the location, one from that wormhole to the other wormhole, and then from that wormhole to the other to the other location. But they have to be light years apart, so you can't feasibly do that. Yeah, I, I don't know. They, once again, these are all theoretical right now. So who who knows what's really going to happen? Um, so, anyways, guys, thanks for listening. This has been your host, Luke, and my co-host, 
yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And, uh, yeah, feel free to check out our YouTube channel, Luke. Go ahead and plug it for us. Yeah. But I, I doubt if you search the true believer, you would find it. Like, if you look up Anacondas and Florida's Everglades or in Kanyamba, you would find my channel. Uh, I make my... Um, I make branded thumbnails, so it should be pretty easy to find. I hope you guys have a good night. Bye.